You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tech Fan Podcast number 311. I'm Tim Robertson with a scratchyish voice, and uh, joining me on wire. I'm David Cohen. So, without uh, a scratchy voice. No. We missed last week. Uh, I wasn't feeling hot, and I'm still not feeling good at all. No. And you had a family thing. Family thing. And so uh, yeah. here we are. Yep. Back st- again. Yeah. And I'm still not doing great. No. Okay. I'm sure the listeners can tell. Yeah. But I you know, I did offer you the opportunities of, uh, of ducking out, and I said I would do something myself. But you wanted to be here for our listeners, and I think we all appreciate that. I enjoy talking with you, David. Yeah. So uh, the last episode we did, uh, you know, we recorded that three weeks ago. Yep. And that was uh, the second day at MacStock Expo. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say MacStock Conference. It's not really Expo at all. No. Um, in fact, the only company that really was had any kind of an exposition was OWC, our sponsor of this show. Yeah, though the um, I have to say I was pleasantly surprised by how well the, the whole kind of, you know, bring old old computer stuff went that one that seemed to be really popular you know i i don't remember even reading about it maybe i just completely missed it because had i seen that i would have brought a ton of stuff uh-huh. uh i do wonder though if they don't take it do you got to take it with you because i would have been looking for the nearest dumpster <laughs> i'm not taking all that stuff back now do you have do you have regulations on on how you get rid of that sort of stuff here in well, currently at the moment in the because we're still in the EU, um, there are you can't just throw that stuff in the trash. You have to you have um, to recycle properly it. recycle it. Yeah, yeah, you do here too. At least you're supposed to. But you know, I, I I see computer monitors and old TVs just laying out in front of someone's house for the trash to pick up, and they do. And uh, you think, well, you know that that's not really something you should just be putting in a landfill. Definitely not. A lot of nasty stuff in those things and it, and yeah and they don't decompose it yeah it's just going to sit there forever yeah i mean think about the uh you know what i was thinking about the other day was that and, and we're a couple years out of it now but that whole going to new mexico and digging up all those old atari cartridges yeah and i wonder how many companies have done that in the past where they just buried a whole bunch of inventory to write it off yeah, I, I, I think I think people do do that all the time. I know that um, I've come across people who've kind of bought properties and then found those still piled up with stuff that that guys didn't want. They just left it behind, uh, computing stuff and everything. I bought you remember those thirty iMacs I bought yeah <laughs> a while back, a long while back now, quite a few years ago. Um, that was somebody who who basically bought a warehouse and when he got in there, he found these. 30 odd 40 machines and so he, he sold them as a block um i still have some of those <laughs> yeah. got rid of them all <laughs> yeah that's a problem yeah i need to uh i need to do something about that yeah i'm in the midst of kind of reconfiguring my office mm-hmm. and I, I i came up with a i thought a good idea so it was it's these metal shoe racks uh but they're kind of small uh-huh. But they're deep for a shelf. They're, it's it's metal mesh. Mm-hmm. And they're perfect for video game consoles. And the way I had it set up before, I had these 
IKEA, um, what do you call them? Shelves. Yeah. That it, you know, it was just a black shelf that would stick out from, and it was great for displaying stuff, but it was really, really tall and it was really limited and they weren't deep enough for most of the video game consoles that I like to show. Yeah. So this was a, and Chad Perry, by the way, has those now. Um, this was a, a better way to display what I've got. <laughs> but the problem is I ordered seven of them and they don't all fit the way I thought they were going to. I did a very poor measuring job. And so I've got my office half torn apart and it's been this way for a couple of weeks because I'm at an impasse. I'm not sure what I want to do now because I can fit more on one of these. Well, technically two of these shelves than I could all my other shelves combined before. And so I don't think I really need all the other shelves, but yet I've got other stuff I want to put up there. So I don't know. I'm at an impasse. So my, my office is half torn apart. I feel like crap. Um, I've been traveling quite a bit over the last three weeks, which is why I think I feel like crap. You know, I was up in Woodstock, so I drove north of Chicago and, uh, that's a long drive. It was an even longer drive home, by the way, David. I don't know if I told you yeah. that. I got stuck yeah, in an hour and a half, a hour and a half traffic jam. I went about a mile and a half or, uh, I went about eight miles in an hour and a half. That's, that's brutal. That's that's like soul crushing. You cannot get out of there. I hated it. Uh, and then last weekend, the family and I took a mini vacation, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and we went up to uh, Petoskey, up, or, uh, up towards the top of Michigan. I uh, went to a beach there and a few other little places, and my son wanted to look for uh, Petoskey stones. I'll just let you Google that. And then we went to Traverse City and uh, spent a couple of days at the Great Wolf Lodge. They have their own little water park inside. My son's always been scared of the slides, the the, the water park slides. But he actually yeah. he actually got over that fear and did it a few times. So that cool. was yeah, it was cool. And and the and the room we stayed in it had like a little faux um, log cabin in it. Where it had bunk, but I had three beds, a, a set of bunk beds and another one. And then where Julie and I could sleep was, you know, it's in the same room, but it's kind of walled off in the full size bed. So that was, it was kind of fun. But the problem was they had some kind of a big fair going on in Petoskey and just tons of people. And then when we got to Traverse City, I didn't realize it was also the time for the Traverse City um, uh, Film Festival. And so they were incredibly busy. So it was just, mm -hmm. you know, a constant stream of people. And I think I picked up a bug from somebody. This is either a, right. a bad sinus infection or a cold. I'm not sure which. And I've been, mm -hmm. you know, so busy. I haven't been able to go to a doctor because, you know, I got back late on Sunday and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm working. Today's my first day off. Yeah. If it's a virus anyway, there's not there's not gonna be anything the doctors can do. No. Not really. I just kinda I'm better now than I was yesterday, but that's not saying a whole lot. Because I'm still kinda it's bad. But what are you gonna do, right? Nothing. You just gotta get on with it. Yep. So I don't know about you, but I had a good time at MacStock and I was kinda hoping by this point Mike would have had 
information posted on next year's Mac stock, but he he doesn't have it up there yet. Although he says it will happen. Um, yeah, he. I, I don't know. After organizing something like that, he maybe he, he needs a bit of downtime before he starts getting into it again. But it'd be good to know. It would be good to know. Start making plans ahead of time. Um, you know, yeah. cause almost everybody has to travel to get to this thing and you know, it, it takes a little bit of time. I know, um, you know, I, the last time we podcast, you hadn't done your talk yet. And, uh, mm-hmm. I have to say, I really, really enjoyed your Apple one redux talk, you know, really focusing on the I, microcomputers of today. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it seems to be pretty well received and, um, yeah, maybe I should, uh, Maybe you should try and figure out a way of turning it into something for the show. Well, um, I particularly enjoyed and learned of the British connection to what's going on with the Raspberry yeah. Pi, because I had no idea. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So um, pretty much the Raspberry Pi was inspired by a um, a project that was done in the 1980s here in the UK called the BBC Micro. Um, the BBC decided it wanted to run... Uh, a set of TV shows about computing, which was the up-and-coming thing in the early 80s. I remember. And they effectively commissioned the English computer industry to come up with a reference computer that would be able to be used so that you know people at home could actually program exactly the same um, on, on exactly the same machine as being used in the TV studio. And uh, a company called Acorn Computers won the competition to uh, develop the design. And the thing they came up with was actually very similar in concept to the Apple II. Um, there's a lot of kind of design uh, design inspiration from the approach that Apple took with the Apple II. Uh, and obviously, the Apple II itself was a, a development of what was wanted to do with the Apple I. So it had built-in basic, it had lots of expansion capability, it was very flexible, uh, and also very well optimized down to a price. Um, and so this was, you know, you found you found this computer in all sorts of schools uh, in the UK in the 80s. I used it as the first computer I've ever, I ever really used in earnest uh, when I was at school. And um, when they came up with the idea for the Raspberry Pi project, they basically wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to come up with a cheap computer that had um, built-in... Um, development and uh, expansion capabilities to kind of inspire school kids to get into the old style of computing rather than the way they're taught nowadays, which is just how to use applications. Um, and that's what the Raspberry Pi came, came you know, that was what inspired them. But the, the link is that um, Acorn Computers, after they built the BBC Micro, they then did in the Archimedes. And the Archimedes used a, a reduced instruction set set processor a risk processor which was very powerful used quite a low amount of power and was very very fast because it it works in a different way than than most microcomputers and they designed that themselves um and eventually they got out the computer business and they started selling just the designs for those kind of chips and so acorn became uh, acorn risk machines or arm and you may have heard of ARM because it's the processors that's in pretty much every single smartphone and tablet in the world today and in the Raspberry Pi. <laughs> or at so least their designs are. So everything was going good. And then uh, it looks like everything just kind of crapped out on David's end. So 
we're going to uh, finish this episode uh, a little differently. I'm going to record a segment here, and David's going to... Uh, David actually put the notes together for this episode, so he's got two stories he's going to read, uh, well, talk about, uh, including our uh, wiki trolling episode, uh, which is a a Formula E story. I'm kind of looking forward to hearing that myself. Um, But, yeah, we're going to break this up a little bit. Uh, So first things I want to do is uh, thank our sponsor, MaxSales.com, if you're looking for a good used Mac, and my brother-in-law right now actually is. He posted on Facebook that he is looking for a used MacBook, a 13-inch MacBook Pro, I should say, uh, for my niece. And he was asking for recommendations. And I I looked at what he was looking at and the prices, and it seemed a little out of line to me. So, of course, I went to MacSales.com, and uh, I sent him a link that... Hey, this is what you should get. Uh, you're getting a, a one terabyte SSD in a i7 with Thunderbolt, and it's thirteen forty nine, which is a really really good price. So if you're looking for a good used Mac, think MacSales.com. So I want to talk about uh, this article that David posted. I'll be honest, I didn't see this. Uh, before I read it in his show notes. And it's an article from Ars Technica. It's called Privacy Warnings Spell Trouble for Millions of Low-Cost Android Phone Owners. This is troubling. And here's what it basically boils down to. A company called Blue, B-L-U, has been selling very low-cost, unlocked iPhones on Amazon. And Amazon was really promoting these heavily. Uh, because you can get into one of these phones for 50 or 100 bucks. It's unlocked. I thought it was a great way that if you broke your screen on your phone or you dropped into water or something and your phone is shot and you're still a year and a half out of your next contract, you have to buy a new phone. The, the cell phone companies aren't going to help you. You know, AT&T, Verizon, they're not going to do anything for you. So you're just out of luck. Now, if you have insurance, uh, especially if you've got an iPhone and you get Apple Care, well, there's a fee. It's like 79 bucks for most of them, and they'll just give you a new one. That's great, but what if you're, what if you don't have it? Uh, what if you're on an Android? And some of these cell phone companies they sell insurance, but my experience, those things are pricey. And you got to jump through hoops and it could be weeks before you get a new phone and you still have to pay a hefty fee. So I thought this idea that a low cost Android phone by blue with a decent screen, I've actually got one, uh, one of the first generation ones uh, from like three years ago or so. And it works great. Uh, 50, 100 bucks, put your SIM card in and you're good to go until your contract's ready. Well, there are trade-offs. And uh, this is the story from Ars Technica. Amazon said it's suspending sales of the Android phones made by Blue following a presentation last week that said that there that said that three of the manufacturers' models sent sensitive personal information to third parties in China. That's pretty bad. Uh, scrolling down, it says we recently learned of a potential security issue on select Blue phones. 
some of which are sold on Amazon.com, Amazon representatives wrote in a statement. Because security and privacy is our customer, uh, of our customer is of the utmost importance, all blue phone models have been made unavailable for purchase on Amazon.com until the issue is resolved. So that's pretty bad. Um, I'm looking for exactly what was... Uh, here it is. Uh, Cryptoware was the company that broke this uh, and, and revealed it. And Cryptoware said on Wednesday that it stands by its findings and that the company provided some of the technical information other researchers could use to confirm the data collected. The firm identified three phones made by Blue, the Grand M, Life One X2, and Advance 5.0. The first two sent a variety of data, including cell tower ID and location, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> phone numbers, IMEI, IMSI, Wi-Fi, MAC addresses, device serial numbers, and a list of installed applications, and a list of installed applications with timestamps to a server in China. The Blue Advance 5.0 contained code ex uh, execution and logging capabilities that could be used by third-party apps, a vulnerability that has remained unfixed since late last year. Um, that's pretty bad. Uh, scrolling down... Cryptoware's warnings are troubling for millions of owners of low-cost phones. To keep prices low, manufacturers of these devices are often uh, d devices often turn to discount providers for over-the-air updates. As a result, there are legitimate concerns about the safety of their data collection practices. So, w what is w what is Blue saying? Well. The data that is currently being collected is standard for over-the-air update functionality and device informational reporting, said Blue, blah, 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 blah. This is in line with every other smartphone device manufacturer in the world. There's nothing out of the ordinary that is being collected and certainly does not affect any user's privacy or security. Hmm. Well, not every other manufacturer is doing this kind of crap. You know, I'm pretty sure the most profitable one, which would be the iPhone is not doing that. So, you know, sometimes you do get what you paid for. But this is becoming kind of, I don't want to say commonplace, but I, I see more and more stories about this getting hacked and that getting hacked. And this company had all the credit card transactions and data collected hacked by malware installed on a computer like Chipotle. Um, Target had a big problem. Sony had a big problem. Uh, you you got to be careful on what you're using and what information you're putting on there, except everything's digital now. And now you have to worry about sensitive information being sent from your phone simply because you got a cheap phone because yours got broken. You know, it, it's one of those things that how much information... Are you comfortable putting online? And increasingly, it's starting to look like it's not just online that you have to worry about. You have to worry about going to the store and swiping a credit card. Because are they secure? Increasingly, it's looking like they're not. And that's the issue. That it's not just what you're putting online. It's what all these companies that you're dealing with 
from the cash register to the phone that you're holding in your hand are taking without your knowledge and or permission and sending it to servers in China. Russian hackers are getting into email servers and stealing information. And let's not kid ourselves. There's hackers right here in the United States where I live that are doing the same thing. Identity theft isn't going through your garbage anymore and pulling out sensitive data. It's, it's capturing information online. Security has to really become a much bigger focus for us, not just the companies that should be providing it for us with the promise that they're going to keep our information private and secure, but us, the user. I think there needs to start, we need to see an influx of technologies that give that data protection and put it in our hands so we don't have to just rely on other bigger companies whose, let's be honest, their their goal is to make as much money as possible, not to protect our data. They, they, they only make this a big deal when it hits them in a PR sense, i.e. when it hits their pocketbook. That's when they make a big brouhaha about respecting consumers' privacy. and Otherwise, they don't care. We care. The consumer cares. So we got to start taking more of that responsibility, I think. The impetus has to be on us. But how do we do that? What tools do we use? So that is what I'm going to ask you, the listeners, to let me know. Now, Scott Wilsey had a great post uh, a while back on MyMac.com about VPN. And then Owen Rubin came on. And he started talking about another VPN, um, Ivacy, that I actually signed up for. Now, here's the thing. I don't use it all the time. I forget. But I'm going to start using it more. I paid for it. I paid for like three years of it, two years of it, I think. And, you know, we just got to start protecting ourselves. It sucks. Uh, you know, we should be able to pull out our phone, use an app, make a few phone calls, without worrying that that data is being transmitted to some server in China. But increasingly, those are the real-world concerns. So what tools are out there? I know about VPN. What about you? What Are you using any kind of tools to kind of protect your data? Do you, do you trust these cloud servers? Everything now is save your data to the cloud. That way, if your computer dies or your phone dies, oh, your data's protected. You can get it back. But how protected is it? You know, what I'm not hearing, though, about all these, and I hate to sound like, you know, some Apple-only guy, but I don't hear about these things coming out of Apple. That they lost millions of, or, or they got hacked, and a whole bunch of information off iPhones are being sent to a server in China. So I don't know. Is Apple the only company out there right now that really does respect users' privacy? And I, I don't know. Does that mean I, I, I trust iCloud? Because I really don't. So let me know. What should we, we be looking at? What should we be talking about when it comes to these kind of privacy concerns? Protecting our data. Because increasingly, that's what we are when we're shopping. We're data. That's how the businesses look at us. 
It's just data, right? Credit card data, purchasing history data, what you're looking at online data. So let me know. The show at techfampodcast.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, send us an email. David and I will read it right here. And, uh, you know, we're not going to come to a consensus on... And, and I know some of you, I'm looking at you, Brendan, who says he doesn't put any information online. It's all hackable. and But we live in the real world, the most of us, and we can't avoid purchasing stuff with credit cards online or going to a local restaurant, swiping your card at lunchtime. We can't avoid those things. So what can we realistically do and still live in the modern world? Let me know. The show at techfanpodcast.com. <coughs> As you hear, yeah, my voice is starting to really take a nosedive. And it's starting to hurt to talk. And I can't, you know, with David here, he's talking. I could take a drink of water and clear my throat a little bit or mute it. But I can't really do that when I'm solo. So... I'm going to wrap up this segment. David is recording the other segment of the show, and I'll put that in right after this. Uh, thanks, you guys, for listening to this uh, technically challenging episode of Tech Fan. It happens sometimes, you know, but we still want to push the show out. I still love recording the show. Um, I know David does as well. We're going to have Owen back on soon. I uh, always like talking to Owen. And, uh, again, send us some feedback. We really do appreciate it. It makes us... Uh, look at different perspectives and it makes the show better. So the show at techfanpodcast.com. Hit us up on Twitter. It's techfanpodcast or my Mac, one of the two. And uh, I'll see you guys in a week. Take it away, David. Hello listeners, this is uh, David Cohen, one of your Tech Fan co-hosts here. Um, we've had some major technical problems this afternoon, as I'm sure Tim has already filled you in on. I'm currently recording onto my iPhone directly through this speaker. Um, unfortunately, Tim has the advantage of being sat at home in front of his computer with all his good recording gear, and I don't, and I've now lost the benefits of all of wires or Skype's um, voice processing kind of filtering type stuff the calls uh, and obviously I'm not going through Tim's or, uh, crackerjack mixing setup either so um, this might sound a little bit rough and ready I've tried to find the best environment I can for doing this um, bearing in mind I'm still based at, home, but at the office at the moment um, so please uh, bear, bear with the audio quality and the uh, sound of the shred you can probably hear in the background in the office as well uh, I did go into a, a quite a private room but it echoed to uh, hell and high water so I figured that this was probably a better thing to do. Hopefully that person will finish shredding shortly. Um, pretty much sums up our afternoon to be honest. Um, one of the issues I had when I was trying to get a better connection to Tim was I tried to use Skype. Now I'm currently on a Windows machine because I'm at work and wow Microsoft, Microsoft, Microsoft how to take what was a good product and ruin it. The issue I had was that um, there are now about five or six different ways to get Skype onto a Windows machine. Um, there is Skype for Business, which is the corporate version, which I already have. And that's meant to be now integrated with the uh, consumer version of Skype, so you should be able to make calls using the Skype for Business client. Tried that, could see Tim, didn't work. Just refused to connect to him. 
So then I went to try and install Skype, and then that opened up a whole world of hurt. A Windows 10 machine apparently has Skype already installed on it, some sort of universal Windows app. Well, that wasn't on there. It didn't. It seems to have disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. I don't remember deleting it. Maybe when I installed Skype for business, it nuked it. I don't know. So when I go to the Skype webpage and try and install Skype, I end up with this multitude of options, and they all tried to hit me at once. Uh, it was trying to install it from the Windows 10 store. Uh, it was also trying to install an extension into Chrome so that I could do it over the web. At the same time, um, Microsoft Edge, the built-in browser to Windows 10, popped up and said it was by far and away the best way of doing Skype. Uh, and it would uh, start up and try and get to the Skype web page. Uh, and um, at the same time, the, uh, the Skype desktop client also was there and as an option for download. I was ended up not, not really understanding how I was getting Skype. At one point, Tim tried to call me, my iPhone rung on Skype, but also something on my PC was ringing on Skype as well, but I couldn't find where it was, so I couldn't answer the call. When I finally did get a copy of Skype working, uh, there, was, there was no way that I could see to um, change my headset so that it was going through Skype. Uh, that didn't seem to be there there at all. Tim said he could hear me, but I couldn't hear him, and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. What a complete and utter mess. Why on earth does Microsoft have such weak strategy that when they decide to do something, they never roll back the old version, they just add something extra to it, and you end up with five or six different things that all look and sound the same, all work completely differently. An absolute pig's ear. And, and I'm afraid this is the way things are going with Microsoft and Windows 10 at the moment. Um, fans of the show will know that I've long been an advocate of Windows 10, saying it's probably one of the best operating systems Microsoft's ever done. But really, in the last few months, a lot of the updates they've been pushing out have been breaking things in our corporate environment. I'm getting reports from my users all the time that they receive updates and then bits and pieces stop working on their machines, and I end up having to troubleshoot them. I had one just yesterday where uh, a user got a new machine, the machine's been off for a month because it had to have a repair. And so now it's out of date with Windows 10. And effectively what happened is it got in some sort of boot where there was no way it would connect to Office 365 for his mail, no matter what we did. Uh, tried every single troubleshooting thing going, including updates and everything. And eventually we just had to basically neat the machine and build it from scratch. And that was the only way to fix the problem. That is appalling. So, you know what, Microsoft really got to up their game and sort themselves out. They are trying to do all things to all men. They're trying to adopt, keep all their, um, their regular old customers happy and at the same time adopt an iOS-style model where they're constantly pushing out updates and they're constantly updating things and they're constantly changing things and, it's all, and it all looks the same because it's just Windows. Um, and it's just not working. Really need to sort it out. Anyway... That's that round finished <laughs> for now. Um, there are a couple of other things on the uh, show notes for today that we were going to talk about. Uh, one of them is kind of a win and a loss for Apple uh, and iPhone, and I'll find my iPhone. Um, uh, the loss is actually not Apple's fault. The loss is actually uh, Erlinger's fault, the airline I was using when I went out to Chicago. So here's the deal. Uh, when I left Chicago to come back home after Mac stop about three weeks ago, uh, I was in the airport in the terminal, having gone through security and everything. Uh, and when I actually got to the gate, 
I realised I did not have my phone with me. I use an iPhone SE when I travel. I don't tend my take my regular corporate iPhone 7 with me. I tend to switch to a different phone. Precisely for this reason, that if I lose it when I get home, I have a phone that I can use and work, work with straight away. Um, and as I use my phone for business, that's pretty important to me. So I was in the SE and it was gone. Couldn't find it in my pockets, went through all my bag and everything, realised I probably must have absentmindedly put it down somewhere and walked away. So immediately got my MacBook out, um, got onto the onto the uh, airport Wi-Fi, uh, and I could see it was still there in the terminal by going to find my iPhone. So I immediately, uh, obviously, disabled it, put a message on it saying that um, if anybody found it, I was at the Aer Lingus gate going back to Manchester and could somebody please bring it down to me uh, in the hope that maybe uh, you know a member of staff or perhaps somebody of the janitorial staff would see it and pick it up before I had to leave. And basically I hung around until I was the last and they were looking to close the doors to get on the plane in the hope that the, uh, the thing could, would come back. Unfortunately I could not get the resolution uh, required to actually pin down where it was in the terminal on my MacBook. And I, having just lost my phone, I really didn't want to wander around the terminal with all my bags and everything and not with, a, with my MacBook in my hand trying to find my phone. Um, I knew it was still also in the terminal because it was still connected to my Apple Watch. Um, one of the weird things about uh, an iPhone and Apple Watch is that if, it's, if they're both on the same Wi-Fi network, they'll stay connected even if they're not within Bluetooth range and it, it can be a bit disconcerting when you first find out that happens because you think oh my phone must be out of range and if I'm if it's showing on the watch that it's not in range and it's still connected that means it must be on my person somewhere because it's got to be within the Bluetooth range but that's not the case um, and so the whole time I was trying to find it I was pinging it using my watch trying to make it make noises and uh, and that sort of thing to try and get people's attention but to no avail so eventually I had to go on the plane fly back home first hour on the plane I was a very very sad person because I'd left my phone behind um, and I was expecting I was never going to see it again it probably been stolen um, so I got to Manchester got home um, had some sleep had to think about what to do then I went on to find my iPhone again uh, and the phone was still showing is in the terminal I just left from in Chicago this was by this point it was about 15 hours later so uh, I figured at that point that it wasn't stolen, either it was still where I'd left it, or alternatively somebody had picked it up in the terminal and was holding onto it. Um, and I was just looking on the Chicago um, O'Hare website about what to do about lost property. Turns out you had to ring the cops there. Uh, when in fact I got a, an, an email from one of the managers, Aer Lingus managers at... Um, at Manchester, at uh, Chicago, saying they'd found my phone, had been turned into them, uh, and could we have a conversation about how to return it to me? So that was great. I was really pleased. I was pleased that find my iPhone worked, that I'd been able to lock my phone out and uh, still monitor where it was. Obviously, that was only going to last while the, the phone still had charge. So I knew I only had about twenty four hours of a, of a dead phone before uh, before the battery ran out. Uh, but I was able to determine where it was, and then because I could put a message on it, I was actually getting able to get a return to the airline. So happy days! And bearing in mind, it's three weeks ago, four weeks ago now, you'd think I'd have my phone. Alas, I don't, because this is where things take a turn for the worse. What we arranged to do was that um, Aer Lingus would send the phone back on the next flight to Manchester. Uh, it was actually it actually goes via Dublin that flight. So I said, right, can you send it to Dublin and then have 
somebody in Dublin passes somebody who's going to Manchester and then contact me and let me know when I can go and pick it up from the airport. Uh, I figured that was the easiest thing to do rather than trying to get international careers going and that sort of thing. So that's what we did. Uh, and I received an email within a day from a very nice lady at um, or, uh, Chicago's um, passenger, um, passenger management team for Aer Lingus saying that the phone was on its way back to Manchester. Unfortunately, I've never heard back from anybody in Manchester about where my phone is since then. Uh, and I've spent so, quite some time chasing the people in Chicago. Uh, and in fact, just before I started this recording, I was chasing them again saying... Uh, because they 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 basically were disappointed, I think, that Manchester have not contacted me about my phone uh, and have been chasing up via email again. But unfortunately, we all know how email is. It's very easy for people to ignore an email. Uh, and uh, clearly the people in Manchester for Aer Lingus are not as uh, conscientious as the people in Chicago. So watch this space. I may get my phone back or I may be... Uh, claiming off my holiday insurance or I may be claim, claiming off Aer Lingus for their staff not returning their phone to me. But the technical side of it did work and it worked well uh, and um, always make sure you'll find my iPhone turned on if you have any iOS devices because it will work for you even if the human element does not. Finally for today um, I have a wiki trolling selection for you for this week. I'm really upset that um, because of the technical problems we had, I've not had an opportunity to discuss this with Tim because I think he would probably would have been quite jazzed by this one. Um, the link in the show notes you'll see is to something called Formula E. And Formula E is a open car, open wheel racing series. Um, very similar actually to Formula One, though in a smaller scale. And one of the reasons it's on a smaller scale is because as the name Formula E suggests, the cars are all completely electric. There is no uh, combustion going on inside these vehicles at all. They are driven by electric motors and batteries. And I, I came across, I've heard of this before, but I came across this a couple of weeks ago and my son and I sat down and watched it on TV. Um, it's uh, transmitted here every week on uh, Channel 5 in the UK. And I tell you, it was an exciting couple of hours. This is, if you like car racing, this is where it's at. It really is. Far less, um, uh, Formula One um, is, is obviously, is, is the big thing sort of outside the US. Uh, and um, Formula One, you know, it has its issues, really. The cars are supremely technical and very, very fast. But it can be very, very boring because overtaking opportunities are few and far between in Formula One. Um, and it's a very technical uh, formula there's a lot of racing strategy goes into the pit stops and everything but the, the other thing as well is that the situation we've had for the last few years is that two or three teams dominate Formula 1 uh, and basically it's, it's a very limited competition because there are two or three drivers and two or three teams who basically dominate and uh, makes it not as exciting as it could be Formula E is not like this. The cars are all pretty much standard. The only real variation between the cars is um, some of the more popular drivers can get a performance boost that comes from social media. They're actually allowed to 
um, choose to get receive an, e- an extra electricity boost during a particular race based on their performance on social media, which is a, an interesting concept. Um, the, the race I saw that didn't, didn't really make much of a difference, to be honest. Um, you can't change tyres. You can change car once in the race. Obviously, the cars have limited charge and they, can, they can't stop the race from recharging. So effectively, they have one pit stop per race and the pit stop allows you to change from one vehicle to another. So to go from your empty car to a fully charged one. So you don't have tyre strategies, though the pit stops itself are quite exciting. Um, but the thing is, it's all done on city circuits. The, the, at the top speed of the cars is lower than Formula 1, that's about 150 miles an hour, um, which means it's quite well suited to uh, city circuits, and so all of their races happen in cities. That means the uh, track layouts can vary, the spectators are nice and close, and also the tracks are supremely great for overtaking. Lots of corners, um, lots of braking opportunities, lots of... Um, push you pull you type racing really where people are getting very close to each other and yeah there's a fair bit of um chutzpah and uh, domination going on to try and get the best the best opportunity to overtake um it was quite exciting to be honest there was a fair bit of you don't get the sort of thrills and spills you get maybe in nascar or indycar um but the problem with the, with those i've always find with the nascar and indycar is you get these massive crashes which are spectacular to watch um but the problem is they don't really do an awful lot for the racing. They take out a few cars, potentially, um, and cause a few re- retirements, but um, they don't really kind of affect the race until it restarts again. Whereas with Formula E, you know, if you have somebody who takes a bang, their car will often keep going, but uh, with limited performance, obviously, from the, from the damage that's, that's going on. Um, and that gives further opportunities for good racing and, and uh, you know excitement and that sort of stuff. It was very much a uh, watching the race that Alexander and I watched was very much you know a, a kind of a variance watching people go up and down through the uh, through through the um, the uh, leaderboard as as the race went on. The only other thing that they have, of course, is that they they are conscious of the energy they're using in the cars. Um, and so there's a little bit of kind of team management associated with when they push on and when they when they back off. One of the things an electric car can do, obviously, is if you're slowing down or braking, um, you're regenerating a little bit of energy. So there's some energy management going on in there as well. If you've never seen it before, I really would advise you to check it out. It's very, very exciting. Um, exciting in a couple of respects. Not only is it good to watch today... But the reality is this is probably the future of car racing um, in all formulas and all, all disciplines. I mean, one day um, the petrol car, is uh, the, the internal combustion car is going to be as dead as a dodo. It's only got uh, a limited lifespan left just because of the nature of our environment. And even if the oil wasn't running out, then obviously the carbon dioxide emissions is a problem now. And everyone is moving to electric. Um, so it, it's probably only a matter of time before the particular type of racing you like, whether it be uh, NASCAR or IndyCar or Formula One or, um, I don't know, even kind of demolition derby, is probably going to be based on, on electric vehicles rather than um, internal combustion. So this is the future uh, and it's worth, I think, getting into it now. Something else I actually saw in a separate programme um, on the BBC recently was that uh, there are a couple of teams who are looking to combine the technology of Formula E with the technology of driverless cars 
And so there is the prospect over the next few years of having completely robotic cars racing against human drivers in Formula E. Uh, and I think that's also going to be very, very exciting and very interesting to watch. So um, I think it's pretty much if you like car racing and you like tech, then Formula E should be something you uh, you should have a look at. So I strongly uh, suggest that you uh, take a look at the Wikipedia link that we're going to include in the show notes for Formula E. And I hope very much um, you find it something of interest. So that's pretty much me for this week. I'm now going to head to the station and head back to Manchester from London. Um, Apologies again for the fact that Tim and I couldn't do a proper show this week. Hopefully next week the uh, tech gods will smile on us a little better. Speak to you then.